you could totally wear the headphones instead of me if you want. Didn't I let you wear them last you, time? Yeah. You want to? So then I need to just keep. Just you'll just notice if there's something if yeah. I if I start like wandering away from the mic. But no, no, I'll let you do it. You sure? This is your okay. show. Oh. <laughs> well, is it though? <laughs> That's part of the question. I I think it is your show. It doesn't mean it's exclusively not other people's show. Right. But um, you do have a large imprint on this show. It's true. And so the masks I know are you know it's a little another filter layer but it should be okay right? i this think it's going to be fine okay yeah okay. i can't hear the difference right now okay. i can feel the difference but then i'll forget about it okay, okay. um and you sound good we'll, we'll make it a catch-up on tape with okay the larger question of um how how commonplace continues to live with me yes that's the question i have in mind yeah no, do you okay. want to start right there <laughs> i think I can segue into a self-introduction, just in case you need that for the program. Please. So my name is Doreen Wong. I worked uh, with the Commonplace team from 2018 to 2020. But it feels, I don't know, two years doesn't quite describe it because the show is really quite collaborative mm -hmm. um, from the inside. And... You know, I feel a little silly. Like, I, you know, I'm asking because, of course, I care about what happens with Commonplace. And I also feel my own sense of attachment. I'm like, what are you all doing without me? You know? <laughs> and then, but I feel like mostly I feel like there are really good things happening. Mm. And um, I'm the one who decided to leave, you know? And um, and then I'm also like, oh, but, 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 you know, I feel attached to certain things still. And um, so... I have been reflecting on how commonplace continues to live with me post my tenure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's going to overlap a lot with, I think, how you have made an impact on me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you still, as I just said, you're still, you're, you're the founder, you know, and you're, um, you're the captain of the ship. And so it has made an impact. And I think sometimes I think of you because... I think of you when I'm really lonely sometimes, Rachel. Mm. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel like you're that other person in the world. I mean, there are, there, maybe I'm being a little narcissistic or something, but I feel like there are a few of us in the world that, um, that speak the unbearable mm. and you're one of those people, you know? And I think of you and I'm like, Oh God damn it. Here I am that person on the team that people appreciate, but also find troublesome. Hmm. because I say that difficult thing. And then you always were like, sometimes I would say a difficult thing to you and you'd be like, oh yeah, damn it. But <laughs> I will listen to you, Doreen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I always appreciated that. Oh, thank you for saying that. I think about you so often and like in a way so much more than I thought I would mm. you know I knew I was going to miss you when um when you left uh and I knew I would that we would continue the relationship but I also you know just having the excuse to speak to you you know uh, on a weekly basis and and be in communication um and make stuff together right I think that's the other thing it's like there's a certain kind of friendship and a certain kind of relationship that you have when you are making things together. Yeah. 
um, that's different from other kinds of relationships. Um, and I, and I realized that I, like, I tried to start a new project with Ariel and I realized it was just because I wanted her to sort of be, to have a, a reason that she had to talk to me, you know, or uh. had to make stuff with me when really I just wanted like more friendship mm -hmm. with her. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's so much chance and, and, magic in when people's lives intersect um you were telling me something about v and it reminded me of oh you're saying v is a really good fit yes okay because um well like many of the people that have worked on commonplace they are enormously talented really good writer really good reader uh and then in terms of like what makes them a good fit for me, they are really good at holding me accountable, um, reminding me of, you know, I, I digress, as you know, and that I think is part of my charm uh, it is. <laughs> and part of my process, yeah. but it can be incredibly inefficient and um, confusing even to myself. You know, I'm like, wait, what am I, what was I talking about? That's like a constant thing that I'm saying. And as I get older, that gets to be more of a problem, I think. And V has a really lovely directness. One of the things that was a really good fit between the two of us is that you have a, a also like a real directness and a real kind of um, expectation that a good working relationship is going to involve a lot of processing. Mm. And so I felt very safe with you. And I did not want to, and still don't really want to, or like being somebody's boss. Yeah. And that can be really uh, unpleasant for people who need me to be decisive and, uh, and, and, and to have those boundaries. V is much less process oriented mm -hmm. in some ways. And yet it's a, it's a real trusting relationship mm -hmm. that I feel like V will speak up, mm -hmm. um, and has spoken up if I make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's really like deeply important to me. Like I mm -hmm. want, uh, I, I'm always wanting to work collaboratively mm. rather than in a hierarchy. Mm. And we don't have a lot of good models for how to do that. Almost all of the places that I've existed in mm. are about hierarchies and maintaining hierarchy and figuring out where you are and moving up or moving down or looking for, you know, uh, validation or criticism and, this is something that's like happening for me in all the parts of my life, in the classroom, in my writing, in my relationships, in my family, like trying to think about how to like live and work and be in relationship uh, in ways that are nonviolent, in ways that are loving, in ways that are productive, but not like mechanical, but also like get stuff done. Yeah. And it's really hard sometimes to do that yeah. if nobody knows what's going on and right. nobody's ever in charge. I, you know, V and I had a little bit of overlap. And in that time I got the sense that they were 
good at boundaries mm-hmm. and had some great firmness yes. about them. Yes. And I remember when Katie was part of the team, Katie was also a, a great person mm-hmm. to do that at times too. And right, I, I've also been in relationship with people who don't need to process out loud as much as I do. Um, but there is another way that we are able to, yeah, it's like be in relationship without all the verbal communication. Yes. So I think I hear that from what you're saying. Yeah. That's yeah. Really good. I mean, each person who has worked on commonplace has changed commonplace sometimes in smaller ways, sometimes in bigger ways. When Katie left, I, I basically like went into mourning <laughs> for a while. And when you left, oh my God. Oh, I mean, I knew it was coming and I was super glad, you know, for you and it was super much the right thing, but I definitely get attached. Yeah. Um, especially when it's a, it's a good collaborative relationship, but, and also because this whole example is not necessary, but I don't really know how to explain it without it. But I have a fantasy uh, of starting a non-degree MFA program or some sort of writing community or some sort of artist colony um, that is not affiliated with an institution, an existing institution, and that can really be philosophically and logistically more in line with the kind of teaching that I want to do and the kind of learning that I want to do and the kind of community that I want to be in. And so I realized that the way that I make new things is I just think about who are the people and what are the skills of the people that I happen almost by coincidence to be involved with and then what can we make together as the people who have those skills and who want to learn the things that we want to learn together. Um, So I think that's both why I've gotten so attached to the people at Commonplace, um, because it is so much more collaborative, I think, than it seems maybe to listeners, Mm. but also because, you know, Commonplace has become different things just based on who was on the team. (laughs) And I feel this way also with each guest that that I, you know, have on Commonplace. And I think that that's something that, like, even though I, I have said it several times in the podcast that people don't understand, which is, like, how many times I listen to the audio um, before it goes out there and how, how what kind of listening that creates and, and also the way that the conversation actually intersects with my life across time and in different moments. So, you know, there's, there's me preparing for the conversation and the way that I'm like, you know, whatever's going on in my life outside of that person's work is then like deeply influenced by that person's work. Then there's the conversation and all of the just coincidental stuff that's happened and the way that uh, intersects with my life when I went to talk to Natalie Diaz um, and Roger Reeves showed up, like I was really depressed and I almost didn't go. I mean, I just remember thinking I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I'm not going to do this conversation justice. It's, you know, Natalie is this incredible powerhouse poet, you know, who am I to show up depressed, you know, for this, but then, you know, I had this incredible like conversation with her and, 
and and in, in any case you know whatever mood i'm in whatever's happening in my life either connects or or is sort of outside that sphere but then i re-listen to it re-listen to it re-listen to it and think about other people strangers listening to it and the social media for it and 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 those are all different kinds of listening. Mm. So and then, and you know and then I write the introduction at the very end. Right. And sometimes that's months and months afterwards. Um, and I've been changed. Hey, it's your host, me, Rachel Zucker, and this is episode 100 of Commonplace. This is a weird episode, which is fitting. This is a weird podcast. I want to experiment today with not telling you almost anything about this episode and letting it continue to unfold. Some of you will like that feeling, others might not. At the end of this conversation, I'll say more about where to find Doreen Wong's podcast and remind you to go back and listen to episodes 80 and 81 in which Doreen Wong, my son Moses Gorin, and I travel to Taiwan. At the end of the episode, I'll ask you for money, which we need and for non-financial support, which we love, and talk about what's coming next on Commonplace and what Commonplace might next become. You'll also hear an audio testimonial from Chris, a Commonplace listener, and a call for more testimonials. You'll hear what extras and gifts are available for our patrons and book club members. All I'll say for now is that I recorded this conversation with Doreen Wong on November 4th, 2021, two days after recording with Tori Peters and five days before recording with Douglas Kearney, and that there's a reason I wanted to share this one with you as a celebration of 100 episodes. Can you find your way to keep listening without the usual map? Um, and I've been changed by the conversation. So then I, the introduction is going to be completely different um, than it would be. And so in any case, I feel that very, very strongly with our relationship. And I think about, I think about the ways that, you know, talking to you now in this moment in like my new place in my new life is so kind of astonishing. Like when we were in Taiwan together, I was there as a married woman and, you know, with Moses, uh, you know, very much as a mom, also like as a person who was ill. Yeah. Um, and I was really kind of trying to figure out, I, 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 I didn't, I wanted to hear your story, whatever it was, but I realized I was also listening very much with like, what would it be like to have the courage to move away from, you know, your home to this other home? What, what would my life have been like if I hadn't gotten married so young, if my mom hadn't died so suddenly, if I were able to, you know, talk to her about the difficult things in ways that I wasn't able to? I mean, I really was like, wow you know, here's someone that I really respect and admire and who's lived a very different life than I have. And what is it like to be in contact with that life and see how it unfolds and see what your challenges and successes are? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I, this is not about me. <laughs> this is about you. Um, but I think about you all the time is really what I'm saying. <laughs> Likewise. Um, I also think that 
very specifically, you know, my attention has been so much on Taiwan, knowing that you were there and having had the experience of being there and being there with you. And I don't know that I really would have gone if if I hadn't known that you you know, that, that you were going to be there as our guide. And so when COVID hit, um, I was paying attention and not a lot of Americans were paying attention. I brought you a Taiwan wooden comb because I was like, you're somebody who cares about this place. And it's in your goodie bag. <laughs> You, I 100% agree with what you said. You were maybe, maybe the only person outside of Asia who reached out to me when COVID started mm. because COVID was a very uh, real and present danger by early January 2020. Mm -hmm. And most Americans, for most Americans, it was a very far away thing. And so, um, and I just had this sense of, you know, what I kind of knew, but I didn't fully feel until I got over there, which was, oh, right. Americans feel like they're the center of the universe. And now that I'm not in the U.S., I feel, you know, I feel sidelined. And uh, all of my very close friends, like, they are like, oh, those poor Asians over there, <laughs> you know. And so you were the one who had the prescience to realize, hey, this is going to be a global thing. Mm-hmm. And it's going to hit us in the States, too. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh, when I come back to New York, it's actually quite emotional for me because it's... So you've known me since I've left. And so so then we're people that have shared these localities somehow. Mm -hmm. We share New York. We share Taiwan. And, and then... Uh, but we never lived in New York at the same time. And when I come back to New York, it's, uh, it's so emotional for me still. And I was telling you about visiting my ex's family after this. And uh, it reminds me of what you were saying about me. You know, somebody who has such a different life than I do. Mm. And I was thinking to myself this morning that people who, whose lives are so different than mine, um, who come from backgrounds so different than mine, it took, they took a real risk by letting me in and making space for me. Um, and so I'm not going to let go of these relationships too easily because mm -hmm. it took a lot for them to make space for me. So here I am going to see my ex's family who I, I've broken up with this person for, what is it now? Four years? Yeah. Mm. And it's still, I don't know. It's, I know, I know his sister-in-law is going to make my favorite Mexican food, pozole, mm -hmm. and uh, it's just so strange. But yeah, so here we are. But now you're single, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you've done some wanderings. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I and you've had your own podcast. Right, right. So, so what happened since I've left Commonplace, I am working full-time with a network of um, Asian rights defenders. Mm. And so I'm the person based in Taiwan, and my coworkers are based in lots of different countries, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, uh, 
Korea. And then uh, we're trying to figure out how to support civil society in all of these countries and across mm. the region. So, okay, so that's one thing that I'm up to. The other thing I'm up to is I made a podcast with my mom. Mm. And it is considered Taiwan's first audio documentary. Wow. And it may also be Taiwan's first limited series show. Huh. I knew I wanted to make a limited series because, you know, my mom has terminal cancer. It's a show that is about looking at our relationship, including conflict. Uh, it's about having adventures together. And it's also about facing the final, maybe the final venture of death. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a show that would also have its end. Mm. Uh, and I've thought about the influence of Commonplace a lot in making that show. Because, okay, one of the things that has impacted me is we always said that Commonplace was lightly edited. Uh -huh. and, and it took me a while to realize what that meant. And I think what left the deepest impression on me was that I would hear the raw audio and I would say to myself, Rachel doesn't sound so great there. <laughs> Yep. And I would say, oh, my God, she's okay keeping that in. Mm -hmm. She's okay that she doesn't sound, you know, I don't know, various things, the the most, like, intelligent or empathetic or whatever, because we all have those moments, right? Yep. And you you kept it in. And I'm, I don't know, like, that, I don't know if you knew this, but that made an impact on me because I was, like, when I was making my own show with my mom, I had an editing team. So we had a story team and an editing, editing team. And, and then I, have you heard of this concept of double consent? No. Where, so we all know consent, but double consent is like in journalism where one, so the person first consents to do the recording or the interview. Mm -hmm. And then you go back with the edited version the oh. near final version uh -huh. and ask for consent a second time. Uh -huh. Say, are you okay with this being released? This version. Um, and so I did that with everybody who appeared on the show with my mom because it was so personal, you mm -hmm. know, and I didn't want the show to go get out there and for my family to feel not proud of it or that they couldn't stand by it. Mm. So we did all this difficult work of my mom, my dad, my sister, I promised my nuclear family and I promised anybody who appeared on the show that they would hear the close to final draft. Mm -hmm. And uh, my family did make some requests to take some things out. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really tough for me sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, I think most of the time what they're asking to take out, the biggest hit the biggest loss is to my version of the story. Mm. And if that's where the biggest hit is, then I'm okay letting it go. Like, I don't have to look that great all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I watched you do that, and it gave me, you know, a bit more fortitude. That's so interesting. It, I... I, I so I, I, mean, I, have so I have so many thoughts and feelings about this because you know that that's like such a huge uh, sort of topic in my life. Um, 
you know, this question of like the ethics of representing real people and art and consent and, you know, one thing that is really interesting to me about my divorce is that, you know, we, it started off very, very amicably and I thought, oh, you know, well, why wouldn't it be? We're both good people and all this stuff and, you know, like almost everybody, I think there's like a whole industry around divorce that's basically designed to make you fight so that they can make more money. Mm. And and we were not smart enough or capable enough in a very vulnerable time in our lives to like make sure that didn't happen. Um, now we've sort of come through that stage. And what I see is that we're pretty much OK um, with everything. Um except when our version of the narrative is threatened by the other person. And that, and now that I know that and I can see that I, I can, I can modulate, you know, my behavior or what I say to Josh in ways that I think are helpful and thoughtful and he can do that too. And it's just really interesting to me to think about really the, 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 like, why is that so deeply important to a person, you know, to to have control over their own narrative? Um, and I do think that that's harder than, you know, much harder than inviting you over and like my my house is not clean, you know, <laughs> or I, I sound dumb or I, you know, I let people hear my mistakes um, I don't know if that ever really comes into play for me in commonplace, like where my version of the narrative is like really deeply threatened. Um, but that's really interesting. And so, so, and ultimately you were able to make those changes or take those things out. Yeah. I'll, I'll give some examples. Um, but I also want to say that if I heard you say something grossly, I don't know, like offensive, mm. I would have stopped you, Rachel. Sure. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. Cause, uh, because I know that because your intention, I, I, I feel like I know where the, the, the motivations behind the show are and I wouldn't want to hurt kind of where the show is coming from. Right. So I was protective in that way, but in other ways I was like, this is, this is not a big deal and Rachel's okay with this. So then mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. <laughs> so those are, you know, <laughs> and, um, but, God, working working on a show, my show, that was so personal. I think all my work ends up being really, um, really, really personal. And because I'm just trying to work out the knots in my life, you know, and this is the only way I know how to do it. The crazy thing is I made this show in Mandarin and it's my first work in Mandarin and probably my most widely, you know, my most widely disseminated work definitely is no, no, like, Nothing even comes close. But then I was like, but yeah, it would suck for relatives to learn about that through my podcast. Um, And I don't have to bring up every single example Mm -hmm. of how um, I was like a mother to my sister. Mm -hmm. And then there are moments where like my mom talked about you know, I would answer calls from her creditors for mm-hmm. her. She would an- ask me to answer those calls. And as like a nine-year-old, she would make me take all those calls mm-hmm. and say that she wasn't home when she was right there on the couch. And and I would be like, mom, 
you're the person who taught me to lie. You're the first person who taught me to lie, you know? <laughs> and, and then, and then as we're doing the double consent, listen, it brought up all the, it brought up all the tough emotions again. And there I am like right in, like right in the thick of it. And I'm crying and she's crying and she's like, that's not lying. That's not lying. I only ask you to protect me. So then I agree to take out all the words that implicated lying mm. because yeah, I wanted her to be comfortable with it. And again, it, it, it strengthens kind of my story. Right. But it, it would just make her feel worse. Did you re-record or did you just cut? Cut. Cut. Mm-hmm. We did very little re-recording. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are just examples to say of, oh, and to say what it was like kind of, try, I was very consciously trying to put in mechanisms to help me release some attachment to the, to the story, you know, to my version of the story. Um, yeah, but I think I got to see that in you mm-hmm. first. Are there, um, are there things that you experienced at Commonplace, either like through the editing or the production, social media, all that stuff, or the interpersonal stuff that you were like, okay, when I have my own podcast, I am not going to do that. <laughs> no, because it was a very different show. Well, oh, yeah, mostly there weren't really things that I thought, not going to do that because just two very different shows. Mm-hmm. My only, so I had a, um, I had a star of my show and the star was my mom mm. and she was my main my main uh, collaborator and person I was in dialogue with. We didn't have different guests. Another, I think, uh, impact of Commonplace was that I thought of our, I thought of what we were doing as conversations, uh-huh. not interviews. Uh-huh. It's very much a Rachel Zucker, you know, yep. influence. And, and then also related to the piece about not having to even portray the best images of ourselves on tape. I like, for example, I love the Ariel Greenberg episode because you do that thing where you ask, well, what the hell happened between us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you also, like, Ooh, feels weird. I, I love like the little growl, like I'm not done yet. Yeah, the bark is coming. Okay. I bet that we're all like that. Like I'm, I'm anxious so much, you know, and I think a lot of times I just want to be able to like let it out, mm-hmm. discharge it. But I don't, but watching another species, mm-hmm. like, oh, they're just, they're just like letting out and then it's over and then they can like, like Ginsburg lying down now. <laughs> Good. <Okay. laughs> so, you know, I've listened to other, there are like lots of like writing and poetry shows. They're f- terrific. Mm-hmm. And they do a whole other thing around conversation. What you do with the conversation is... Um, you go to that touchy place between you and the other person. Mm-hmm. And in, you're always trying to find 
the respectful way to do it. But, but it's kind of what I was saying earlier about how you're one of those people in my life that say the slightly unbearable because it, or it feels unbearable to let that touchy spot kind of simmer on. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also something really selfish about it. And I, I like, you know, selfishness, particularly for women is really a taboo. Um, but I'm trying to rethink that, um, and try to think about like, not only can I get what I want or what I need, but like, what's my responsibility to make that happen for myself as opposed to waiting for the universe or another person to provide that. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, without even going into the details, like I, I just, uh, uh, there's almost always in a conversation that I'm preparing for, the question I really want to know, you know, like the, what I really want to sort of, and even the language around it is so uh, uncomfortable because it's like very much the language of like use. Um, But like, you know, it's like what I want to get out of it, what I want to get out of the person, what I, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's also true that it's the connection that I want to make or the connection that I've already made with that person's work. And usually the question comes out of connection um, and, and interest and appreciation. Um, But, you know, like I, there, there was a question that I really wanted to ask Tori Peters um, on, on Tuesday. And I was so worried about getting the language right, you know, and being a cis woman talking to a trans woman. And like the question was provocative and, And what if I didn't ask it right? You know, would I not, you know? And so part of it is courage um, of like, okay, well, if I make a mistake, she tells me to, you know, fuck off. Well, I'll deal with that. But um, it's also a kind of desperation. Like, if I'm not willing to risk making this mistake, this is like my one chance maybe to ask Tori Peters, like, this question. And I, I really genuinely feel attached you know to this uh you know to this information like the the question and you can hear the answer when the episode comes out um but was basically like i i think you are inviting me to see life and my own life through a trans lens and that is deeply like appealing to me and 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 trying to do that is like opening up all of these things for me and I feel like there's something fundamentally dangerous about seeing other people's lived experience as a metaphor for your own and being you know a cis woman who uh, benefits from a trans lens without having to embody the risks of living in a trans body in a transphobic world. Um, And even that is a metaphor, obviously, for uh, identifying across difference, you know, uh, without appropriating, without (gasps) shush, difference of species in your case, dog. Come on. Hush, hush, hush. Anyway, 
Did, did you hear the other dog bark I did. first? I, yeah, I did. That's Riley. And I'm going to go. I would, I would like to give their Riley's people some money to go get a dog trainer because oh. it's very hard to train Ginsburg when Riley keeps starting it. The way you were pointing your finger, I thought you wanted to give Riley's parents a whole other something, like a licking. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's funny, too, because the licking is love from the dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> Ginsburg, hush. baby voice with your kids no just with the dog yeah with the <laughs> i probably did more than i remember not as not as much i'm like full-on baby voice with this dog <laughs> i can't and i talk to her well i i do baby voice and i talk to her as as an adult yeah like when when the two of us are alone it's wild wild i've never had a relationship like this <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you were explaining to me how it's selfish, but I don't fully understand yet. And then I want to continue this train of thought. Yeah. yeah. Being able to ask her that question uh, and feels so important um, to me right now um, that I think it, that's much more uh, powerful to me than the very powerful fear of offending her um or yeah uh and uh, so i guess selfish in the sense of like this is what i came here to ask mm, <laughs> you, know? you had an agenda yeah i mean I, I i always think that i kind of don't but if i'm honest yeah there almost always is something you know you know like and now I'm preparing for Doug Kearney and like there's eight billion things I want to know and David Naiman already had Doug Kearney on and like you can find out a whole lot of stuff about Doug Kearney and like those are those all of those things are going to be super interesting to listeners and there's way too much and so but like what is it that I I'm just going to be like, oh, my God, how did I not ask him? I, I, want, I want to hear him talk about the form of performance. Mm. And, I, and, I, and there's, a, there's always a danger, right? Because, like, the form of performance and the body in the performance is different for me than it is for him. And that's a lot of what his work is about. And so I'm speaking across lines of difference in terms of gender in, in this case I think really more importantly in terms of race but he's the one who I want to know this from and 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 Tori's answer really helped me mm. you know I think maybe forever mm. um, in terms of thinking about how to ask those questions and I bet that Douglas's answer to this question of like what is performance hmm. um is going to help me 
with not just with the answer to that, but like, what the hell is a podcast? Why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, like, I think that's also like what I'm always asking. Mm -hmm. But I think the risk is, you know, not just seeming stupid, but that the person will basically, that the answer is going to be, I, I don't know, stop being you, stop, mm -hmm. you know, doing all the things you're doing. Anyway, I'm, as usual, off on a total tangent. <laughs> well, I, okay, so... Rachel Zucker, you make me feel less lonely in this world oh. because I feel like you're that other person feeling around the dark for that. Whether it's that thing that people are afraid to say or that question that people are afraid to ask or just like the spaces that nobody's talking about yet. Mm. And that's, I, that's how I watch you prepare for a lot of the commonplace guests to come on. You know, it's like there have been a million interviews with them already. You know, mm -hmm. what, what hasn't been said so far? But I wonder, like, for me, maybe some of it is I want to know what they will say. I want them to give me insight for my life. An another thing that I think what I'm aching for is just by saying it out loud, whether it's a question or a statement, something transforms between us. Yes. And that, I think, is what I ache for even more. That moment mm. of transformation that arises with saying that slightly dangerous thing. And... And, and, and to be even more specific, what I hope that the transformation, like what kind of transformation am I hoping for? It's one of greater intimacy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think I'm always in some ways like if I find somebody who feels like, oh, maybe a chance, maybe there's a chance that they'll understand that I'm, I think, quite impatiently reaching out for intimacy. <laughs> maybe... Maybe for the other person's ready, you know. They're, that's why it's impatient. The other person's not quite ready, but I'm already. Let me stretch out. Oh my god! Big cosmic yes on that, <laughs> and I'm all. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, all I want to do is talk about sex right now. But I'm like, you don't have to talk about <laughs> sex all the time. You can do it off tape with me. I'm I'm very down for all the sex talk. <laughs> But it is, it is really interesting. It, it, you know, like, I think, I've never thought about it in exactly this way, but I do think that's what distinguishes the kinds of really interesting interviews that ultimately I'm not as compelled by or changed by or moved by than from the conversations that just like change my life and like blow me away I think it has to do with whether the underlying goal is about a moment of of transformation in which intimacy is is achieved between two people who were strangers or just less intimate or less vulnerable or less, you know, and then I think that is kind of what intimacy is. Um, you know, being uh, stable enough in yourself to be fluid enough in the presence of another person that you are changeable and changed. Say it one more time. Maybe intimacy is 
when you are change you you're you're stable enough in yourself you're not afraid of losing yourself entirely you have a sense of um you're able to be changed and changeable um in the presence of another person right like i don't i don't know if real intimacy maybe i don't know i'm still learning about intimacy what it is what it's not you know uh but i think it has to do with change i think it has to do with um not being made better by the other person and you know that phrase like you complete me mm-hmm. is a very static idea um but maybe if it was you know when i'm with you i can change I haven't even gotten that far yet. All I know is that something in the air changes between us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, so related to intimacy and related to sex, <laughs> another <laughs> way that I've been impacted by commonplace and you is around motherhood. Mm. And I know, I know it's like you and a crew of people that I think really, uh, I don't know, like talked about like the poetics of motherhood as a poetics, Mm -hmm. but that was rather mind blowing for me, Rachel, and, uh, continues to be a really useful framework for me. Mm. Um, and I had already been doing, you know, mother, like work on my relationship with my mother. Mm. So I'm not a mother. Um, but you know, you're one of the people who very correctly pointed out motherhood is this unifying experience, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and you, you, while you've mothered, I feel has always been very open to the other, the other forms that this experience can take. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so as we're talking about this, I guess I'm thinking about conversations I've had with my mother. Like those moments where like the air between us changes. So I'll give you an example. Um, so my mother and I have a cup have two episodes where my editor called it the mother daughter showdown hmm. on tape, and you know there's this and that volleyed back and forth, and then at one point she says to me with like, you know, choking back tears, "Why can't you give me some credit?" Mm. why can't you see that I'm changing? Mm. Why can't you see that I'm growing too? And I was like, silent. Mm. Mm. And I forgot that she's also learning to mother as she is with me, as she grows with me. But I also remember I was like, I came with a question for you today, right? So I, <laughs> so I turned the tables on you and I'm the one who came with a burning question. Let's hear it. And, but I, but I think it's a both and situation, right? There's an openness and then there's also a burning question mm. and they both exist. Yeah. So I have a burning question. And I was like, I have to ask Rachel or I have to ask, well, I have other friends in my life that have lost their mother, mm-hmm. but I think you're going to be the most honest with me about it. 
So I did this whole show with my mom. Our relationship has improved, I promise everybody, because I don't know, I feel like I have to deliver somehow on real improvement, not just like what, what it sounds like on the show. There has been real improvement. And it's still really tough for me sometimes. And I think everybody is very nice and nods understandingly, as you're doing right now. Um, but, okay, here's, here's the horrible question. Sometimes I still think about, it would be easier if she weren't alive. Mm-hmm. And it's different than wanting her dead. Of, of right? course, yeah. It's a fine line, but it's still different. So um, sometimes I'm like, she makes my life so complicated. So, okay, I'm going to tell you a story about how she makes my life complicated. Mm-hmm. Before I get on the plane to the U.S., she calls me a week or two in advance, and she's like, are you free the 16th? And I was supposed to fly, like, two days later. And I said, for what? And she said, this podcast wants you to be on the show. And we've done a couple of different interviews, so, you know, it's, like, not totally unexpected. But I, she said the name really fast, and I didn't, hear what this show was or I didn't understand I said send it to me I've never heard of this show she sends me the name do you know okay Rachel the name of this show is ejaculate and leave them (laughs) (laughs) my mother is trying to convince me to be on a show that is called ejaculate and leave them okay Hmm. and and she doesn't even tell me what the show is about right she just says are you free the 16th Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm I don't know, in shock and kind of angry. And I'm like, what? Why would you want me to be on the show? I call her. I'm like, do you know what this means? And she's like, oh, not really. So then I have to explain to her because it's in slang mm-hmm. in Chinese. And um, so we just go through all this back and forth. And finally, I I think that she she wants both of us to be on this show. And I said, actually, I think you should reconsider because you're the head of an international ballroom dance um, studio. Mm-hmm. And your reputation has more on the line than their reputation in this case. So it took all this work, and finally we reached this conclusion that I would go on, but she wouldn't go on. And um, and then I fly to the U.S. after the interview. A couple days later, I see on this podcast, like Instagram story, that she's going to come to their live event. And, and I'm like, what? And, and like, you know, but this is just an example of like, and then there are other things that have happened since then. And then, and then I get pulled in somehow and I'm just like, she makes my life so complicated and I feel really angry sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like she thinks about the impact on my life. So blah, blah, blah. You've heard this all before. So the question I have for you, Rachel, is, is it actually easier after your difficult mother leaves this earth? Okay, so I thank you for that question because an answer or a response, I, there's no answer, of course, came to me that I've, n- a thought that I've never had before, and I think it's really smart. <laughs> okay, good. I, I really need some smartness. And I think it's really profound, and tomorrow or in 15 minutes, I might be like, that was such bullshit. So I don't know. <laughs> So I think the thought, which is so normal uh, and so understandable, but my life would be easier if my mother wasn't alive, which is a thought that I had like almost every day when my mother was alive. Um, 
I think that is true primarily because of the patriarchy and capitalism. And we can't live outside of those things. And so we can't even really imagine what mother-daughter relationships would be like outside of patriarchy and capitalism. But I think that mother-daughter relationships between, you know, strong, vulnerable, feeling, insightful mothers and daughters who are never going to be equally (laughs) insightful would always be complicated, would always be profound, would always be uh, maybe even on some level wounding and wounded because the, the central drama of parents and children is attachment and separation. And it is the place where that is the most, that's, that's where all of your scripts and expectations for life around attachment and separation, which is everything Mm -hmm. basically come from. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you lay the world down on top of that and you have a very specific set of circumstances, which I actually had wanted to talk about, but, uh, I'll pause, I'll put that aside for a second. But I think that, that the complexity around those things is exacerbated by the time and the place that we live in, um, and the ideologies that, and the institutions, um, which are really meant to undermine female autonomy and female power and, and control female fertility and to, you know, denigrate and desecrate women's bodies and to make women afraid. And so, and also the terms of success for modern women uh, necessitate a kind of separation that is not natural. I, w- I was taking these yoga nidra classes and I'm not taking this particular training, but I love the name of it. Um, Karen Brody has, is it, she calls it fatigue in the mother line. Oh, wow. And it's about really rest, finding a way to rest, to heal fatigue in your mother line and just the, the word, the, the word mother line, right? Like, you know, this fatigue, let's just call it fatigue because it's a very non-judgmental word in a right. way that I really like. This is, this goes back mother, daughter, you know, daughter to mother, daughter to mother, mother to daughter for generations, mm-hmm. generations. Absolutely. And, and you and your mother are, like a snapshot of a movie <laughs> that started long before you right. and that will continue long after you. And it's really almost impossible for you in under these present circumstances 
to to in, to enjoy and thrive within the complexity and the difficulty and the drama of of that. So first of all, that's not an answer or response to the question of is it better once your mother actually dies? Easier. Easier. <laughs> easier, right. I mean, I think that there's two things to that. I, so, so, so that is to say, like, the first part of what I said is, you know, the same way that, like, you know, patriarchy is designed, white supremacy is designed to undermine uh, solidarity. Yeah. Right? Um, and patriarchy is designed to undermine solidarity. Like it's, that's, so when you feel that, um, I think maybe the first thing might be to think like, who is the enemy here? It's definitely not you. And it's definitely not your mother. Yeah. That doesn't mean either of you are acting with your best selves. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that like, it's not painful and awful, but it's a setup. It's, you know, like the house always wins. Mm. Um, and so that's one thing. I think, you know, I have really come to terms with my mother um, in a really profound way. And I don't think that that, you know, I thought maybe it was going to happen like when I went to Taiwan and I thought maybe it was going to happen, you know, no. Um, I think that was part of it. I think, I think it's like really been a journey, but I think the divorce was, mm. was really, you know, was really the thing. Um, and Josh might say, or other people might say like, yeah, cause you're turning into your mother and you're not fighting it anymore. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, and that, you know, that's a little bit true. I mean, even the room we're sitting in, like that's my mom's guitar and that's my mom's Aboriginal painting that, you know, she got when she was in Australia. This is the mirror. This is literally the mirror that my mother looked in every day. Wow. Like, you know, hanging, don't bark, please. Good girl. Yeah. Good girl. Good girl. You know, choosing what to bring with me oh it's, it just got too much i could i could see ginsburg like trying to I resist know. i know it's just like too if, triggering if there's more than two of my friends out there come on you're okay settle down how am i gonna how am i gonna be a podcaster as the single mom of a barker <laughs> So you don't feel trapped, but don't get out. And then you know what? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think her death was super horrible, traumatic for a lot of reasons, but also just, and I, and I, you know, several of my friends have had, their moms have died. Many of my closest friends, their moms have died. Um, and the more fraught the relationship was in life, the more fraught 
their dying was not the other way around. And it wasn't, you know, like, I think there, there were some people who were close to me who were like, okay, but you know, you had such a bad relationship with your mom. Do you feel a little bit relieved? You can tell me, you can be honest. And I really did not feel relieved. Now I feel both relieved <laughs> and really sad in a very sort of clean way. And I was just talking to my friend about this. My guess is that a year from now, two years from now, I'm not going to be talking about Josh in therapy anymore. Hmm. I'm still going to be talking about my mother. Right. Um, you know, and my father um, very much. And that there is something so primal and primary I mean, it's like the definition of primary uh, about this relationship that you have with, you know, people who brought you into the world. Um, the one other thing I want to say very specifically is that I had a really kind of profound experience in class the other day. Um, this semester, I'm teaching two undergraduate classes, and in one of my classes, there are a tremendous number of international students and um, almost everyone in this section speaks at least two languages and, 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 and usually like three or four. And um, I asked them to bring in a, a, a poem that they had to perform. And one student brought in uh, an audio tape uh, or recording of a woman singing and the student sang along with it. This student is male presenting student. We, we don't know each other's names and, and, and we don't, everybody calls everyone they, oh. but um, it's important to this story that this is a male, this is a cis male student. Okay. Um, in any case, it was a very, very moving uh, performance and it, it turned out that this was a re recording of um, his mother singing a prayer in Swahili wow. that he sang, you know, with her. And um, another male student in the classroom was like moved to tears. And another male student was talking about this. And and I and and um, what came up was two things. One, that there are hardly any stories, certainly in Western culture, about the relationship, especially the loving relationship between mothers and sons, other than Oedipus and Jesus. Right. And those are fucked up stories. <laughs> and those do not describe the relationships that these young men have with their mothers. The other thing that came up was the number of students in this class who were separated from their mothers for like extensive periods of time and were raised by grandmothers or other family members. And I think that this is also an incredibly untold story. And um, it's, it's incredibly common all over the world. It's just really, really uncommon in middle to upper class American society. And so I think that it's 
it's our I think a Freudian uh, received understanding of this primacy or primary relationship between mother and child implies that separation from the mother is like an almost unhealable wound. And I don't think that's true. I th and it's because it's because it's first of all, for so many reasons, including that it is so common and throughout history, it's the, the uncommon thing is an isolated mother and an isolated child or children alone, not working uh, and, and, and raising children. That's like not a thing, except it seems somehow to be the standard. And so I also think that you in particular are living in a moment where there hasn't been the language invented um, or that this experience doesn't have the stories and the language uh, enough uh, and the complexity of that. And so you and your mom are kind of left without models, left without epics, left without like long, you know, without a normal expectation that mothers and daughters are close and not close, are together and not together, are, you know, that, that it, it just seems like if, if it's, anytime you feel alone, or I, I'll speak for myself, anytime I feel like I'm having an experience that no one else has had, I always assume something is terribly wrong with me. And when I realized like, oh, now what's, what's <laughs> happening? Oh, this is so New York. This is so New York. Your neighbor is having a little sing-along. It's actually quite nice. Yeah, there's a sax player uh, who, who plays over there. And actually, I, I met him uh, and I said, you know, I've been a little worried about you because I didn't hear you practicing for the past week. Wait, you did that to him? Yeah, and he said, oh, no, I've had like four or five gigs. And I was like, okay. <laughs> That, that feels a little extra but it's also I adorable i know anyway so i don't know i think that there's i think there's some stuff that's like really archetypal and then i think on top of that patriarchy and on top of that uh capitalism and on top of that the failure of like literature and art and you know to tell this story and you but you are you are you're living it and you're telling it and you're working it through and you're thinking about it and you know, and uh, meeting Brenda and reading her book and thinking about that and thinking about that mother line. And um, it is changing, but it, it it's it's not going to be with my generation. It's not it's it's it's, you know, two, three generations from now, it's going to be like, oh, right. OK. That's part of motherhood. That's not a failure of motherhood. That was amazing, Rachel. You <laughs> gave me okay. I had I got three different levels. Uh, one was the archetypal, absolutely great, such a great reminder. And right, I am just I am just um, you know a figure on a stage acting out a very age old story. Mm -hmm. And two, I'm just trying to sum up so I can integrate it into my into my brain. Um, Two is, is capitalism and how it 
peddles the myth of separation so that I can ex- we can exploit each other. Then three is right, sort of um, influenced by patriarchy and capitalism, the kind of literature and art that exists. So there are very few models. And so... And here's one more. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and then it came up explicitly in my conversation with, with Tori, where I said, you know... And I and this the this idea first came to me really um, from Yin Yi oh. um, when we were talking about um, transitioning, um, and also you know and really more than transitioning about gender fluidity and 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 non-binary gender. But um, I this idea like I was like you know I think I think maybe mother is my gender, not mm. woman, and definitely not girl, and. Um, you know, I think if if we think of it that way, and I think for some people, daughter is a primary gender, um, and you know, like that's a weird thing to say. So, but let's just let's just go with it for a second. Like, in what ways could it free something for you to realize that you are performing your gender, or you are performing your daughterhood? Um, the same way that you perform gender, mm-hmm. which is to say complexly and um, it's not the same every day. Mm-hmm. And it is both something authentic and true to who you are. So we don't mean performative in the sense of like, there's the real me and then there's the acting me. Like when we say we're performing gender, it's not, and this is, this is, this has taken me so long. Like I'm just getting this, you know, in my life, um, you know, that it's not like real binary performative. No. Mm. So it's, it, it, you are, you know, right. like, but I do think that like motherhood and daughterhood are more than roles or jobs or maybe we demean roles and jobs um, and have like the myth of the authentic mm-hmm. self as being something unchangeable. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's true. And, and I think, you know, I, I imagine that your relationship with your mother will continue for your entire life. And certainly mine has. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at first I was so angry and hurt uh that she wasn't talking back to me mm-hmm. and so it felt like oh this is a- another iteration of me not getting what i need from her because she's died i still in you know in the middle of a conversation mm-hmm. and now i can't hear her part and i can't she's not going to change anymore. I might change, but she's not going to change, but that's not actually really Mm. true. Um, and I, and I don't necessarily just mean that in a, like a woo woo spiritual way. I just mean like, of course it continues to change because my, my gender keeps changing. My sexuality keeps changing. My identity keeps changing. My age keeps changing. My, you know, my body keeps changing. Everything keeps changing. Right. Um, so I think it is going to be easier because you are going to be um, 
more yourself. But I think it also is going to be harder because you won't have as much. It it will be harder to see her change. Right. Good answer. And I think the work that you are doing now with her is work that almost every uh, person I know who who wants to live a, a, a kind of insightful life regrets not doing if they don't do it. Other than ejaculate and leave, right? That, are those the only two alternatives in life? Stay and suffer or, you know, wait, what, what would, what's the option? So, you know. Ejaculate and stay or ejaculate and leave or? No, it has to be the opposite of that too. Like you know, no orgasm and and stay. <laughs> yeah, that. So that's kind of yeah, daughterhood. No orgasm and stay. Mm. <laughs> right? Isn't that the expectation? Sometimes I think I think for certain kinds of because you know I may have said this to you before, but I realized why temper tantrums are so important. Right, because then the kid gets to feel unconditional love. Ah, you know. So in that case, there is an orgasm of some. There's a there's this right. burst, and that burst is really important. And I was the kind of child that didn't have outbursts. Uh huh. And so I was was I think on this very I had this very fragile idea of how to be loved. Uh huh. Yeah. How's that working out for you in your romantic life? You mean, you mean not having outbursts? <laughs> or having a very fragile idea about what it means to be loved? Well, you know, I've discovered through just a little bit of kink play that I enjoy being bratty. Oh. Yeah, because bratty, like, lets me have all these, this, this other person, this, like, really interesting, um, kinky Chinese-American trans man said to me, oh, you like being a brat. Ah, he helped me define it and it was like yeah because i just need those outlets you're so mature really yes (laughs) i really admire i really i yeah i do i do i do okay another like really practical question are you gonna stay in taiwan forever okay before i go to the practical question just to tell you quick other things yeah so at a certain point when we were editing the show, mm. my show, I realized, oh, I'm a character. Mm. My mom's a character. And my editor said, oh, is that, do you feel like that's not you? And I said, no, of course it's me. I said all those things. It's just me frozen in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it was helpful to have that distance. And there were even times in the story process where, people would act out me and act out my mom. And I loved it. <sighs> Come on. When do you get a chance to see yourself and your mom get act out in front of you? Right. It's, it was so interesting to me. Oh my God. And so these were kind of ways that I tried to build again, this question of attachment yeah. and, and um, man, okay. There's so much more to say because it feels like what we're talking about is how wounded we feel at separation. But then, but then there's so much work we have to do with ourselves about like, not separation, but some distance from some, from our, our fucking ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 
Um, okay, so Taiwan. Am I going to stay while my mom... I'm also here in the U.S. right now because my mom is relatively stable. Mm-hmm. Her, She's still doing chemo. It's been a very intensive year and a half on chemo. But she's alive. Um, she's propelled by... My sister is about to do this marriage, like wedding ceremony thing in Taiwan. Mm. And so she's very propelled by that right now. Uh And my sister is there with her so I can be here. Uh, I will stay in Taiwan as long as my mom is still alive. Uh And then, then do I come back to the States? What do I do with myself, my life? Um, trying to figure that out. Um, I think that this country has changed so much with COVID that I'm, it's been tough integrating back here again. What do you, what, what is it? What are the changes that you see? That's so interesting. Mm. Well, somebody was asking me what I miss about the U S and I feel like for so long, this country, you know, growing up, you know, this, but this country tells me you're not right. You're not right. You're not right. Um, and then somehow in the growing up process, I discover, well, nobody's really right. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this country is all about a certain kind of messiness. And even the COVID management has been so messy. But there's something about there is no right mm-hmm. about the United States. You know, getting to a place where you can see that and be, you know, luckily I'm in the kind of city where you can really see that. And then you're like, oh, I kind of have more space. Mm. And, but, 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 but that kind of, I don't think I would have reached the point of there is no right if there hadn't been all this kind of bumping up against each other. Mm. And so this country has changed for me a lot in that everybody's withdrawing more mm-hmm, and there's a mm-hmm. lot less bumping into each other, literally. And that is sad and hard. Yeah. And I just feel really on edge. You know, we're recording right now with our masks on mm-hmm. and I can't see your whole face and your whole facial expression. And it's, uh, I, it's not fun to be on edge all the time. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't think that's changed as much that COVID hasn't had that same effect outside of the U S no, because just, just the Taiwan bubble. Yeah. Because our case rates are so low uh-huh. right now. Today's case rate was two people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think that we, I mean, I'm going to speak for all of New York and all of the United States, which is a stupid thing to do. Uh, no, I, I'm not even trying. It's really about New York. I do think that, I mean, I teach in a mask in person. My students wear masks. I am very, for a lot of reasons that I feel very unapologetic about, I like don't even let my students um, like take their masks off to eat and drink in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Like I have them, you know, go outside. Um, but that's because I... I'm trying to, I'm trying to give them it. it, There are students in my classes who have lost people close to them from COVID and um, they really want to be in person and they're super anxious. And one of the things that I've seen is that 
And Moses has also like really told me that that he's seen this among his peers. That anybody who you know that that COVID uh, has been like this global trauma that has caused people who already have a lot of anxiety some of them it's just like spiraled out of control and nobody's really talking about that um you know as like you know if an individual who was already anxious and i would say that like my students fall among a population of of people who for all sorts of really important reasons like the environmental catastrophe that is upon us some uh, environmental toxins that are like affecting them um, and you know, all these other things, they are, anxiety was already an epidemic mm -hmm. um, in this population. And now they've had this experience of like severe isolation um, and fear and generalized anxiety and nobody is in charge and nobody knows what to do and there's conflicting information and their parents have no clue and they're at a moment in their life where they're supposed to be making some of their own decisions but nobody knows what to do um i think that they're really like and nobody knows what to do with them or how to help them and everybody's trying to just pretend like that the point is to get them back into the classroom get them back right. into the classroom anyway this is this is it, it's just, it's very interesting. Uh, so I'm like really rigorous about, about the masks um, in the classroom to try to give the students who are freaking out just a little bit of security that I am in charge in the classroom and that they can hand that, that piece of it to me. Um, that said, I notice in my own behavior and, and outside of the classroom, I think New Yorkers are acting generally as if our cases are two people a day. I think so too. Yeah. Um, we are not at two people a day. We're like much higher than that. Um, but I think we're closer than any other place in the United States maybe mm -hmm. uh, to the kind of safety that we are pretending exists. Right. People are not wearing the masks mostly it's scary yeah. um you you start talking about anxiety and i actually want to bring that up myself yeah. so uh that was also my alarm to remind oh, me of time okay so, good a couple of final wrap-up thoughts i the other way commonplace has impacted me is around your work on confessional poetics as mm. well so i wanted to ask about the relationship you see between anxiety and con the confessional. Mm. Um, the other reason why I think it's appropriate for you to call the show centered around conversations and not interviews, because I would, I would, I would gander that like twenty five percent of the conversations have some confession from you. <laughs> yeah, so. totally, totally. What will I say now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I mean, I feel like people express anxiety in different ways. The way it shows up in my life sometimes is that I have an urge to confess. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that if that resonates with you at all. If you see, if your anxiety levels are more stable, if you're feeling calmer, do you feel less an urge to confess? And is that 
a fair relationship even to draw? Okay, the only way I can respond to this is slightly roundabout. Um, so um, oh, I have the best therapist, and it's so annoying. <laughs> I mean, it's like the most amazing, wonderful thing, but it's, she's just, it's so annoying sometimes because I want to have a temper tantrum and I want to act like a kid. And I, you know, so I, I, I was feeling so great last week and for the past few weeks and really feeling like, you know, haven't had a panic attack for months. And I think that the cancer scare was like hugely helpful to me. Uh, and definitely the divorce and, and, you know, living in this neighborhood and not on the Upper West Side. I think that was, there were a lot of things. I, I knew that my life was not in alignment with the life I wanted to have. I think there's lots of different ways that people process that when, you know, when that is, when they're aware of that, uh, including trying not to be aware of it. Um, but for me, I think anxiety was a big part of it. I think the anxiety was trying to get my attention and saying, this is not good. This is not good. This is not healthy for you. You know that you are continuing to be in situations that are making you sick. Um, and the anxiety was like, move, get out of it. Do, you know, um, whereas depression is like, you're trapped in this forever and, you know, I would kind of go back and forth between the anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression. Like I'd feel anxiety and then I'd be like, who do you think you are to even have this anxiety? And then I would go into depression. But, you know, this past week I've, I've been down. And so I was trying to talk to my therapist about that. And, I, and um, she said, well, I think, you know, you're just disappointed because you thought you'd like arrived or you were arriving. You mm -hmm. thought you'd like figured some stuff out about how to have a good uh, co-parenting relationship with Josh. And you wrote the end of your lecture book mm, and yay. thank you. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of seeing this guy and um, that's been, you know, really interesting. And I think I, I, I think even though it was very new, I thought, ah, I have figured out a way to date that this, oh, this, this might work for me. And then small things happened in each part, right. Of, uh, uh, of those and, and, and other parts, you know, of my life where it was just like, yeah, you're not there yet. And like, of course I'm not there yet. You don't unlearn, you know, your whole lifetime's worth of bad habits or, you know, whatever. And so she said, well, can you, she said, this is what I talk to kids about. I say, like, think of anxiety as like a bully and it's, you know, telling you all these bad thoughts and you just have to like sort of stand up to this bully. And I said, you know, it's hard for me to recognize this as anxiety because it doesn't feel like anxiety because mm. I'm not having a panic attack and I'm, I'm functional and I'm, I'm just sort of sad and tired and angry and want to act out. But like, mm. you know, I, like this, this morning I thought like, I don't want to have therapy. <laughs> and then the thing that made me most angry was like, 
Yeah. So if I don't show up for therapy, well, who is that going to hurt? Just me. Like I have, I have enough adulthood to recognize that my desire to act out will only negatively impact Mm -hmm. me. And that is so annoying. It is. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think, you know, the question is about anxiety and confession. And I think that, I think confession is about like two, has two like really important parts. One is about the desire to be seen and accepted by others and yourself. Like to, to, to bring something that has been pushed down, repressed, blocked out to the surface yeah. um, and, and to, and to integrate it, you know, into your relationships with other people and your awareness of yourself. So I see that as like a, as a fundamentally like necessary and appropriate healing desire mm. and, you know, for the individual and for the culture. Because the more we have these prohibitions and these taboos and, and, this sense of like I'll love you but not not if you do this or not if you feel this or you can't you know ooh that's dirty ooh that's pathological that's sick you know and so so much of it is like no you know I want to have a more integrated sense but then I think there's a part of confession which I have frequently indulged in which is about acting out Hmm. and I don't like you said like sometimes temper tantrums are necessary and sometimes acting out is necessary and good. And sometimes it's a sign that we're like reverting to a younger self and that the anxiety bully is kind of winning Mm. because we don't have the skills and tools that we have as adults Mm. who are not being, you know, put down like, if we really feel comfortable and confident in ourselves, I don't know that we need to confess, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that sense. Right. It, it's some, I, I think the desire to confess, if I can still use the word anxiety, it's some, it's some anxiety around um, integration or lack of integration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's also helpful. Okay. Okay. A few more thoughts on commonplace. Let's hear it. And um, commonplace has really helped me change what I think of as a poet. Mm. Uh, I think, I mean, just to use other words to define what a poet is, I think that commonplace has helped me see the poet as a kind of public artist intellectual. Mm. But there's a public there's a public aspect um, and like the, the kind of serving the common good. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, the kind of openness and intention for serving the common good. Because sometimes I think we have this image of the poet, you know, that like very like old school, white, pale, like pale and white, mm-hmm. you know, um, a, a bespectacled person at the desk. Right. But, um, but but I think commonplace re- every single person we have on the show look look at me we oh yeah, my god you're still part of the we okay. you always will be <laughs> I'm so lucky 
yeah, so it's like every person on the show is really is really public facing in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been so helpful for me. I think because this is a long form conversation and the again, the word intimacy comes up, the the intimate level that the sharing happens, it does, at least as a listener, really draw me in and feel like I know this person more than I did before, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody, I feel like I, I said this to you looking at your bookshelf. Everybody, I feel like I should be reading or know about commonplace is like at least 80% of that. So I finally finished this like author's note for the end of the lecture book. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm waiting to hear from Heidi and I'm like really nervous that she's not going to like it. And this thing went through, like I kept writing it and then throwing it out and writing it and throwing it out and writing it and throwing it out and then not writing it for like two years, three years. And then I finally was like, I can't write it. I can't write it. I can't write anything. I am going to have a conversation with Isaac Miller, Mm -hmm. um, who you also know through Commonplace. uh, And I'm going to talk to him about why I can't write this. So we had, it was supposed to be a 20 minute conversation. It was like two hour conversation. We recorded it. And I was like, okay, here's what I want to say. I don't know why I can't write it. Mm -hmm. And then um, Heidi listened to it. I was like, Heidi, I can't write this, but here's the conversation. And she was like, okay, but it's too long. And so then we started editing it and cutting it and doing all the stuff. And so then I just was like struggling with it, struggling with it. Like how much should I move things around? And it was just like, like what is lightly edited, you know, for this, like, you know, and uh, I did it, I did it, I did it. And finally I was like, okay, I think this is good. I think this sounds like spoken and all this stuff. And I, and I, and I gave it to two people, uh, Doug Powell Um, I read it to him out loud and he was like, this seems like a really gendered apology. Mm. Like you just seem like you're apologizing for all the things that aren't in the book. And I was like, Oh God, you don't understand anything. (laughs) Um, and then I sent it to my friend, Laurel, Laurel Snyder. And, uh, she was like, can you talk? And I said, okay. She calls me and she says, you know, I never say this to you, but this is just not working. And it it feels like a draft. It doesn't really feel like spoken. It's not a transcript, but it's not an essay. It's not writing. It's not this. It's not that. Like, I get what you were going for, but it just doesn't work. I think you either have to include the whole transcript or write an essay. And I was like so mad. Right. And then uh, I basically rewrote, I wrote it including this part of this conversation I had with Laurel. Um, and the thing that she said, which is now the end of the book is, you know, cause I say in my conversation with Isaac, I think that what I've come to is that my favorite form is conversation. And Laurel said, maybe poetry is the form that gets closest to conversation. Hmm not an essay, not a transcript of a conversation, not, you know, but, but a poem, like something about the intimacy, the openness, that moment of like the air being charged between two people, like maybe the poems get closest to that. 
And I think this, I, because this, I've thought about this a lot, like why, I also agree that, that, that poetry is a form of public speech much more than other kinds of literary arts. This stupid Western idea that John Stuart Mills or whoever it was, was like, oh, poetry is language overheard. It, but mm. it's, a, it's like a person speaking to himself. And then, you know, poetry is like that language overheard of the self speaking to himself. Mm. Um, but I don't think that's what poetry is. And mm. I don't think that's the kind of poetry that I'm interested in. And I think that you really have to have two people for a conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's not like so much in the history of like the Western lyric, mm. but that is in the history of poetry as a spoken form mm. that got mm -hmm. written down. That's true. Okay. Wait, answer another question super fast or okay. say, I don't have the answer to that. And then we got to turn this off because I'm V is going to kill me. Okay. Anything you hope commonplace does in the future or mm -hmm. stops doing. I would love to see Commonplace take up residence at the Guggenheim Museum. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be fantastic. I think if we could somehow manifest an institutional partner, that would also be fantastic. Mm -hmm. What else? Um, I've liked the experimental shows, mm -hmm. but other people who have been part of the team have made the argument that it's more effort than... Um, then like more, more, more bang. Well, you know, it's like a lot less, of effort. Less bang for the buck. Less bang for the buck, <laughs> right. Well, right. Yeah. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> um, we just ran out of batteries. Okay. You've been listening to episode 100 of Commonplace with Doreen Wong. Doreen's limited series podcast, Dos Salidas, was created with her mother, Mish Liang Su, in Mandarin, and produced and distributed by Ghost Island Media. In thinking about this, our 100th episode, we've also been thinking about our next 100 episodes. How can we grow beyond traditional one-on-one -on -one author conversations and experiment with new forms of conversation and broadcast? Can we grow into a network, a company, that would become a platform for literary conversations built upon non-hierarchical collaboration and more equitable labor practices. Look out for episodes in the coming months that blur established notions of authorship, episodes with multiple guests and hosts and guest hosts, episodes in which my role is that of producer, episodes that follow authors and literary community members in the field as they develop their own projects, and episodes that incorporate more of our listeners' voices. For the next few episodes, we'll include testimonials at the end of each episode. If you have a favorite commonplace moment or something you'd like to share for our 100th episode celebration, which will continue beyond this conversation, please feel free to record an audio message and email it to us, or reach out via Google Voice or SpeakPipe both of which you can find on commonpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to contribute financially to the collaborative undertaking that is Commonplace, visit our website or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. If you'd like to make a larger one-time donation, or if you'd like to talk to us about helping make Commonplace financially sustainable, please email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com. Many thanks to Wave Books for this exciting offer. The next 10 people to become a patron at the level of $20 or more, or to raise their current monthly pledge, will receive a bundle of the Bagley Wright lecture books published to date. This set of four books includes lectures by poets Joshua Beckman, Dorothea Lasky, Terence Hayes, and Cedar Saigo. Also look out for Douglas Kearney's Optic Subwolf and my own The Poetics of Wrongness later this year and early next year. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Valentine Conady, Christine LaRusso, and Langa Chinyoka. Thank you to Doreen Wong for her generosity in this episode and all her work on Commonplace. Thank you to each guest who has appeared on Commonplace, and thank you to all the present and former Commonplace team members, Nicholas Fuenzalita, James Ciano, Daniel Schiffman, Zach Tackett, Becca DiGregorio, Mira Al-Rahim, Natalie Boyd, Katie Fernelius, Jay Hammond, Nancy Wong, Nathaniel Wolkstein, and Judah Gorin. Thank you to all the presses who support us, and most of all, thank you, listener of episode 100. Thank you for listening. I'm Chris, and I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I've been a supporter of Commonplace Podcast since the beginning, or almost the beginning. And uh, I decided to support it uh, because I know Rachel, uh, partly from having taught her two oldest children. Um, But I listened to Commonplace because it is a a set of really fascinating conversations between exciting and uh, wonderful poets. Um, I find uh, reading a book of poetry can sometimes be uh, an incredible challenge, and that challenge gets enriched at times by hearing uh, the writer in conversation with someone who is a, a really um, thoughtful and patient uh, interlocutor, as Rachel is. Um, I listen to Commonplace when I'm exercising or <laughs> cleaning the house. I listened to a lot of episodes and got caught up on it uh, when I was laid up with COVID. Uh, it was really a comfort to have the company of uh, such such poets while I was uh, bedridden. Um, I have uh, recommended some episodes to students uh, of mine when we have studied uh, Poetry by Sharon Olds or Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong, and I thought that it might uh, enrich those students' understandings of the works that we were reading together uh, to get a different uh, perspective on their writers. Um, I think Commonplace is really special because uh, each episode is really clearly uh, an encounter between two individuals, and the dynamic of a given conversation is uh, often unexpected and surprising and fresh. Uh, no two episodes are the same. And um, it's really to Rachel's credit that, you know, these extended conversations really reveal sides of the writers uh, on the podcast that, uh, you know, I that are new to me uh, as a, sometimes uh, 
a real reader of a, a given writer. Um, you, know, you never really know what you're going to get on Commonplace. Um, perhaps the sound quality of those early episodes, some of them was a little frustrating, but uh, I think that the production has really uh, gotten impeccable uh, since then, and I'm really looking forward to many, many new future episodes.